But before I read our text, I want to read a different set of verses for us that will kind of set the tone for the rest of the sermon. You don't have to turn there right now, but I will just read these. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And in those verses, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want us to keep that passage in Romans in mind as we get through this text in Acts. So we're going to read that now. Again, this is Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54. It says, Now when they, being the Sanhedrin, if you remember the last week's message, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Him, Him being Stephen, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then chapter 8 begins, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And then verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So that is our text. As I said, I know that was a lot, but I think getting through larger sections, we can kind of see overarching themes a little bit better. And so it is up on the screen now, but the title is Opposition to the Gospel Message. And there are three main oppositions to the gospel that I think we find in this text. And the first one of those is martyrdom. Martyrdom. If you don't know how to spell that, it is M-A-R-T-Y-R-D-O-M. Martyrdom. And that's in verses 54 through verse 3 of chapter 8. And that is the first opposition to the gospel message that we see here in the early church. And so a little bit of context. If you remember back to last week, we were introduced to a man named Stephen. It was one of the men who the apostles appointed as one of the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. 
And Stephen goes throughout Jerusalem sharing the gospel. And eventually he is dragged into the temple in Jerusalem and tried before the Sanhedrin for blasphemy. Because, of course, he claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And then Stephen, all through Acts 7, gives this incredible speech walking all the way through Scripture to show that yes, Jesus actually is the Messiah. And He is not committing blasphemy. And this speech takes up most of chapter 7, all the way through verse 53. And then when we get to verse 54, we see the reaction of the people who heard this speech. The crowd who was listening, because it wasn't just the Sanhedrin there, but there was a crowd of people listening to this testimony and this trial, the crowd itself becomes so furious with Stephen and his speech that they interrupt him. If you pay attention to verse 53, it's kind of a weird place to end. So the crowd interrupts Stephen in the middle of his speech. And they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But Stephen in this moment is filled with the Holy Spirit and is given this glorious vision of heaven with Christ at God's right hand. And he tells the crowd that he sees this. Apparently no one else does. But he tells the crowd that he sees this vision in verse 55. And this makes the crowd even more upset. So upset, in fact, that without even finishing the trial in front of the council, the crowd itself riots and drags Stephen out of the temple, out of the city of Jerusalem, and there they stone him to death. And after Stephen's death, this is in verse 58, we're introduced to this character named Saul. And he apparently was the leader of the mob that killed Stephen. And this Saul, in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1, then leads a great persecution against the church. This persecution is so horrible, in fact, that the church scatters out of Jerusalem. They have no choice but to either run away or be thrown in prison and killed by Saul. And so that's kind of the overview of that section of text. And I think when most people read this section of Acts, it seems to kind of be the lowest point of the early church. Right? I mean, compared to the beautiful passages about conversion, the speaking in different languages at Pentecost, Peter's speech, the conversions and baptisms, the worshipful community of the early church in the beginning of Acts. When we get to this idea of the church being scattered and running away in fear, we think that that can't possibly be a good thing, can it? I mean, at this point, it seems that Saul very well may actually destroy the church completely. 
and wipe it off the face of the earth. And that can't possibly be a good thing, right? Well, I want you to look back with me at the passage I started with, Romans 8. And this time I do actually want you to turn there with me. So hold your place in Acts and flip the next book over to Romans. Again, this is Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. And so reading that persecution of the early church and Stephen's stoning and martyrdom, listen to what Paul says in this text. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Paul quotes the Old Testament, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I think most of us in this room, especially if you were raised in the church, from a younger age, I think we could repeat this passage word for word, right? We have it memorized almost because we hear it so often. But I genuinely think this passage is on Philippians 4.13 level of being taken out of context and misquoted. Right? Right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet we forget Philippians 4.12. The joke, of course, that I hear often is, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And I think this passage in Romans is on that same level. But listen to what the passage actually says. And pay attention to who wrote it. This is the book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul. The same man who is the Saul mentioned in the stoning of Stephen. The very same person who persecuted the early church in our text in Acts. 
And so even as Paul, I think in his mind, is thinking back to this atrocious act that he himself led in committing of the countless people that he threw into prison and killed for the Gospel, that same Paul is then writing Romans 8. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I think part of the reason that so much in the so much of the church in America is apathetic in their faith, it is because we are far too comfortable. I mean, even sitting here in our service, you have nice padded chairs, tables to put your Bibles on. Very few of us, I think, go without food. We have roofs over our head, beds to sleep in at night, all the clothes we could ever want. I know this is a problem my wife and I have. Very often we find out that we don't have enough closet space for all of our clothes. And those of you that are 16, most of you probably have nice cars. Almost all of you in this room probably have cell phones and video games. I think the church in America doesn't even know what the word persecution is. Much less the word martyrdom. But I ask you, even sitting here in the U.S., look across the world. Israel, of course, is in the news, but look anywhere in the Middle East. And people are killed daily simply for confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. And that sounds bad, potentially. In some ways, it is. Of course, we lament and grieve over those who are called upon by the Lord to give their life for their faith. But what I find so encouraging in all of this is that in those very places where persecution is the greatest, those are the places where the church is growing most rapidly. Right? It is through this very persecution in Acts, the stoning of Stephen and Paul's ravaging of the church, it is through that that God sends out His people to the rest of Israel. They scattered in fear, yes, but we see even just in the rest of our passage that as they went, they shared the Gospel. And so through God's providence, even this act of persecution brings more to the knowledge of Him. And so the church grows most rapidly in this environment where there is persecution. And when I say growing most rapidly, we think numbers. I think America is a very numbers-based culture. But I'm not talking about the number of people who 
walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer, but people who have given up everything they have. People who have lost jobs and homes and family and friends for the name of the Lord Jesus. Luke writes later in Acts that Paul and Barnabas encouraged one of the local churches that they visited by saying this, and this doesn't sound encouraging to us, but they say, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How in the world is that encouraging? They encouraged the church by saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. But I think that's encouraging because as Luke shows us through this story of Stephen's martyrdom, it is only when we are stripped of everything we have and everything that we are that we truly see how glorious and sufficient Christ is. I think it's interesting that it is only in the moment when Stephen is stoned to death that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and gazes into heaven at the very glory of God. I don't think that's a coincidence that that's the moment when that happened. Because not only had Stephen lost everything that he had potentially, he was dragged before this counsel and humiliated, asked to testify to his blasphemy according to the Jews. And in that moment, as he is probably on his knees before this council and the crowd is around him, ready to drag him out of the city and beat him to death. It is only in that moment that he gazes into heaven and sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at His right hand. So I think, though I list this as a point of opposition to the Gospel message, though according to the world, persecution may be opposition, I think genuinely that suffering in this way is an integral part of the Christian life. Because it breaks us down that we might rely not on our own strength, but rather on the strength of our Savior. And I think that's the main point that we get to in this passage. And Luke shows us that positively through the death of Stephen. But then in the rest of our passage that I will get through a little more quickly, he gives us some examples of the detrimental effects of relying on our own power rather than on the power of God. So we see in verse 4, like I said, there's a section heading here, but don't let that fool you because the story seems to shift really suddenly. Right? We're in this really, really dark place where... Saul is dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. And then verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about. So there seems to be a weird shift in the story. 
But I want us to see that this makes perfect sense where Luke is going here. And this story is one of the people who left Jerusalem because of the persecution. And it is none other than Philip, who was one of the other deacons appointed alongside Stephen in chapter 6. And Philip goes, it says goes down, because Jerusalem is higher in elevation. But he goes north to Samaria. And he spreads the news of the gospel as he goes. And he works all of these miracles. Chapter 7, or verse 7 and 8 tell us. It says, so there was much joy in that city. But then we come to another opposition to the gospel message in verses 4 through 13. And this one is magic. So we first had martyrdom, and now we have magic. There's a man named Simon the Magician in this city in Samaria where Philip ends up. And it says, people were amazed at him, saying, he himself was saying that he was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him. And they say, this man is the power of God that is called great. So I want to read this definition because I think when we read the word magic in English, we of course think of our own context. Think of someone maybe in Las Vegas or at a talent show pulling a bunny out of a hat, right? He'll wave his wand around and say abracadabra and someone will appear out of thin air. But in this culture, magic is very, very different. This is a good definition that I found. It says magic has to do with the attempt to manipulate God or the gods, because this affects almost all religions in this culture, into doing what a person wants by means of incantations, spells, formulas, or various ritual techniques. It is based on coercion rather than petition. And so this magic is an attempt, that same book where I pulled the definition from, goes on to say it would be things like, we think of Cupid. You would go to a magician and say, Mr. Magician, I want so-and-so to fall in love with me. Will you give this incantation or this spell or give me a potion that they might drink so that they would fall in love with me. And thus, by these actions, they are coercing their gods that they believe in into forcing something to happen. There were also incantations and spells for wealth and prosperity, for fame, for healing. And so Simon is doing this magic and he's glorifying himself through it because of course more often than not these things do not work right and more than likely he charged for his services right he'll say yes i'll heal your broken leg if you give me 50 pieces of silver or i'll make so and so fall in love with you if you'll give me 20 pieces of gold 
So he made his living this way. And this magic could have been just trickery on Simon's part, but it is also just as likely that there was some sort of demonic influence and activity. I think it's important for us to note that, oh, this magic is silly, right? Those ignorant first century Samaritans, they don't know science and logic the way we do. Well, there's this wonderful thing in American Christianity called the prosperity gospel. I'm sure Aaron has probably mentioned it before. But I found it interesting when I read that definition of magic, it is word for word what the prosperity gospel believes. And the vast majority of American Christianity is deceived into thinking that this comes from Scripture. You may not see it, but your parents might have. The television preachers, if you sow a seed, you'll reap a harvest. If you give me so much money, you can, I'll pray to God for you and you'll be healed of your ailments. Or come to my event and walk down this aisle and I'll touch you on the forehead and you'll fall backwards and be healed magically of your diseases. And so I think in the book of Acts, Simon the magician is the first prosperity preacher. Though he may not have used the name of the Christian God to do so, religion was not much of an interest to him, but power and wealth and prosperity were. But however this magic works, whatever form it takes, whether it's some sort of demonic activity or just tricks and shadows, the Samaritans believed in it. This power was accepted and worshipped by them to the degree that they gave Simon a title they reserved for God alone. It says, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's a Samaritan title for Yahweh. And they believed in it so strongly that they give Simon that title. But in God's providence, Philip arrives. And it says he preaches the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. says even Simon himself believed. And Simon saw signs and great miracles performed. So as much as Simon's magic might try to offer something to the Samaritans, whether it comes through tricks or something else, it is entirely ineffective. It is in opposition to the gospel message because it offers another way. Rather than repent and believe, it's pay me this money and you will be saved. But Philip comes preaching the true gospel with 
true power. But then the story with Simon continues in verse 14 through the end of our text this morning in verse 25. And here this third opposition is money. And I think it's closely related to the second one because the purpose of Simon's supposed magic was to get rich, right? As I said, he more than likely charged for his services of deceit. But so all of these people in Samaria believe and the apostles hear about this and they come that they might bring the Holy Spirit to bear in this new mission field. And so they lay their hands on all of the believers and they receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that the apostles did at Pentecost. But then, look in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But then Peter replies to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now I don't think most of us, unless you do believe in the prosperity gospel, I don't think most of us would actually think you could give money to be saved or to receive the Holy Spirit. But this is a major idea in Catholic theology. Now, I fully did not intend to harp on everyone else, but I think that's plainly what's here in the text. Most Catholics believe through this act of penance that they pay this money to a priest or whoever, and that this person then intercedes for them to God, that they might be forgiven of whatever sins. And of course, it is out of a dissatisfaction with that reality that Martin Luther came to the Protestant Reformation. But Simon says, Give me money, or give me this gift. And I'll give you money in exchange. And though most of us, I think, are not offering God money, I think we're instead offering Him up our good works. Right? And this is a major opposition to the Gospel message. The idea that we could earn our salvation. Right? This is why the Jews opposed Stephen's message earlier in Acts 7. Because they believed if we obey the law to the letter, if we can say, I have followed the Ten Commandments from my youth, I have offered sacrifices, I have been to the temple and the synagogues, I've gone to the feasts, that if our scale on the balance of righteousness, if our good works can outweigh our bad, then we will be saved. And God will allow us in to heaven. 
several people from Lakeview go downtown on Thursday nights uh, at the bars to witness to college students. And the first few times I went, I was genuinely shocked when you go up to someone and you ask, you know, do you go to church anywhere? You know, are you a believer? Nine times out of ten, they'll say, yes, I'm a Christian. I go to such and such church. I'm there every Sunday. And we ask, what makes you think that you deserve heaven? Or what makes you think you're a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Or why would you be let into heaven if you were to die right now? And almost every single one of them will say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not Hitler. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a criminal. And so even though they don't realize it, they are saying the same thing the Jews said for thousands of years. Our cosmic balance is perfect. Yeah, we've messed up. We've done some bad stuff. We drank that one time and, you know, had relations outside of marriage. You know, we've messed up. We've done such and such. I cheated on a test one time. And so you're jumping stuff into this bad side of the scale. But I'm a good person. I read my Bible. I go to church. I'm a member of somewhere. I've been baptized. I've gone on mission trips before. And so you're adding stuff into this scale of righteousness. And really, it's no different than Simon saying, here's some money, give me this gift. But Peter reveals that this request from Simon is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Christian gospel. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. But then he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And so though... Simon's conversion at first appeared genuine. He was interested in it for the power that he might deceive more people. But his main misunderstanding is that he thought salvation could be purchased. That it could be earned. But Peter says, repent therefore of this wickedness. Peter, of course, does not say, sorry, that amount's not enough. Or if you'll put a few more good works in your scale, it'll even out, and then you'll be fine. But he says instead, repent therefore of this wickedness. So these kind of three stories 
or two stories here in this text, I think seem unrelated at first, right? The stoning of Stephen, of course, should be connected to Stephen's speech. And we would think potentially that verses 4 through 25 would go along with the other story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that Aaron will talk about next week. But these texts are a lot more connected than we would originally think. If we get the verse numbers and the section headings out of our mind and just read the inspired text, Luke put these here for a very specific reason. And so in contrast to the persecution of the early church, the martyrdom of Stephen we have the character of Simon the Magician who seeks power and glory and fame through deceit and trickery and earning that he might receive this gift. But I point us instead, instead of Simon's position to Romans 8 the text that we so often read and I think so often overlook. Because it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And so it is not money or magic and miracles that will save you. It's not attending youth group on Wednesday nights that will save you. It's not being in church on Sunday morning or Sunday night that will save you. As amazing and good as those things are, and as much as I pray that we would always be here. Your church attendance does not give you right standing before the Lord Jesus. And so instead, I close with this petition. Something that I think Peter had in mind when he says, repent therefore to Simon the Magician. This is Isaiah 55, verses 6-7. through Isaiah writes there, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. If you don't yet believe in that message, I pray you would look earnestly at those words of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while He may be found. And as an encouragement for those who cling to that gospel hope, but 
are pulled one way or another by the things of this world. Remember the words of Paul and Barnabas. It's in Acts 14.22. Didn't mention that earlier, but through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 